Well, open your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, Peter, this first epistle, has a twin theme of uh, hope. You've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, he says in the first chapter. And holiness, as Pastor Joshua was praying, uh, for he said, you be holy, for I am holy. And as he was praying, that holiness is derivative. It comes out of him. It's not because we have a checklist and we do our stuff and everything's fine with us, but it's because of that work of Christ. When we get into chapter 2, we see in those early verses, he has pulled together this beauty that if you've tasted of the goodness of the Lord, you've tasted his kindness, then you are a chip off the old block. He is the living stone. We are a bunch of living stones that he's put to to be living out the Christ life. That's what I want us to think about this morning as we look at our text. Chapter 2, verse 11, there are pew Bibles. I forgot to look the page number up. But if you go to Hebrews and James, 1 Peter's next. If you're back in Revelation, keep backing up to Jude and John's three epistles and 2 Peter, and you're going to run into 1 Peter. So, and if you don't have a Bible, please take that with you as our gift. Stand with me, if, if you will, as I read from God's Word. 1 Peter 2.11 Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle uh, ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that, having died to sins, We might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray. But you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's word. Praise. All right, be seated, please. Well, during this era, there was a guy by the name of Nero who was the emperor of the Roman Empire. Peter was Nero was brilliant. He was gifted. Uh, But he was suspicious of everyone around him, so much so that he even killed some of his own family members because he thought they might be undermining him. His indulgence in gratifying the flesh was legendary. His treatment, his cruelty towards those that he thought to be a threat to his rule was even more legendary. Tacitus, the, the Roman historian who was unsympathetic toward Christians, recorded how Nero uh, looked for a scapegoat to counter the accusations that Nero had been 
burning Rome for his, for his own desires. This is what he wrote about Christians. Therefore, to scotch the rumor, Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men loathed for their vice whom the crowd styled Christians. And he went on to explain that the reason this happened to the Christians is because they trumped up a charge that Christians uh, hated the human race and therefore they, they were to die. And their death was, he, he says, and their death was made a matter of sport or were fastened to crosses and set on fire in order to serve as torches by night when daylight failed. It was felt that they were being sacrificed not for the common good, but to gratify the savagery of one man. And so here were Christians, as Tacitus says, charged with the hatred of the human race. Now, why was that so? Because Christians refused to engage in idolatry. The Romans wrapped everything in their lives around their idolatrous ways. It may have been their social life, their sports, their employment, their political life. So if you were a loyal Roman, you were an idolater, period. But living as Christ followers means a different citizenship. Peter says you're strangers and aliens. You're living on mission for Christ in the Roman world. And the way to a faithful Christ life could only happen through learning to live in dependence upon Jesus and his redemptive work. And so in these struggles, uh, Christians learn this practical outworking of the theological foundation of the gospel. And that's what we see in this text. And so Jesus' death and resurrection doesn't just take us to heaven as forgiven people. It does that, thank God. I mean, we, we, we're grateful for that. But Jesus' death and resurrection enables you to live as holy people on the way to heaven. It enables you to live his life until you see him face to face. That's cross work in real time. His work doesn't paper over our blemishes and our bad habits while leaving us the same person, but rather he affects us with cross work. He changes us with resurrection life so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus saves us to be like him. He saves us to be like him, to conduct ourselves in every sphere as those, as Peter says earlier, who are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, a people who are proclaiming praises of his excellency because we've been delivered from darkness and now we're living in his marvelous light. Now, you might react to this. You might say, well, that's good, but that's ideal. I'm not living in the ideal. I'm living in the mess. So let's, look, let's just kind of move past that. Reality is much different. No one in a realistic way, can have that kind of life. But brothers and sisters, in Christ, real hope is found to live the new life that is in Jesus. And here's what we want to see. Jesus died and rose so that we might live daily in the Christ life. He died and he rose so that we might live daily in the Christ life. Now, how does this cross-evidencing Christ life work out in daily reality? Well, I'm just to think about it first with an exhortation. Then second, we're going to look at two examples. And then third, we're going to look at Jesus' provision. And they all fit together. So first, the exhortation to live the Christ life. Well, we're on the heels of Peter unpacking the power of the God. This is a spiritual house, a holy priesthood who offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. It shows up in our life. It shows up in our worship. It shows up in our witness through the resurrection of Christ. And in that act of what Christ has done, in that new birth that he has worked in us, in that redemptive work, 
Jesus changes our natures and he renews our affections and he captivates our minds by himself. And so the new normal for Christians is to live the Christ life. That's normal, brothers and sisters. And by that, by Christ life, I mean Christ is all to us. Christ is being formed in us. Christ's character is being worked in us and out of us. And Christ shapes us to mirror him. Christ becomes our treasure and joy in the whole of life. But sometimes we need some reminders, don't we? Uh, you know, we, we still have those patterns and those trappings of the old life that are mapped in our minds so that we often slip into some old practices and we do some things that don't look like Jesus. And we mustn't be satisfied when that happens. I mean, if we're satisfied with that, it's probably because we're not born again. There is a holy dissatisfaction in our life when we see our life not looking like Christ, when we see ourselves falling into patterns of sin. We don't like it. We, we may not be able to move past that just yet, but we don't like it. We want it to be different, and we seek the Lord on that. And so this is where Peter just cuts the chase in verses 11 and 12, and he calls for three actions to help us stay faithful in living the Christ life. First, remember your nationality. Remember your nationality. Dear friends, beloved, I urge you as strangers and exiles, as aliens, foreigners. Now, they were living in the Roman Empire. Some of the people that Peter addressed were Roman citizens. And yet he said, that's not where your real citizenship is. As Paul said, our citizenship is in heaven from where we wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they were still in the world, but they didn't belong to the world, which meant that living in this present world shouldn't mean that we just give in to it. We're citizens somewhere else. And we need to live like we're citizens of heaven. He said, you're strangers and exiles. And so that calls for us to remember the homeland. Remember where we who are in Christ will spend eternity with our Savior and Lord who's preparing a place for us. Remember because he's going to come back and get us. Remember your nationality and live like you're a citizen of heaven. At the world around us so enchanting and so inviting that we spend little time thinking about being with the Lord, thinking about the homeland. Oh, there's just so much to do as though heaven would be boring. There's just so much to see and so the God, who is infinitely majestic and wise, can't create anything in heaven for us to see. Or there's so much to enjoy as though the joy of Jesus is a thimble and the world is an ocean. Don't you see that's Satan's lie? Don't you see the enticement around? I mean, that, that's why... When you read the Word and you, you read Isaiah and, and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, we're going to read those guys, aren't, don't we, brother? You read them and they have this wild language trying to describe eternity. How are we going to understand that with our finite minds? Only by those wild pictures. I mean, why did Jesus and Paul and John and other New Testament speakers and writers why did they speak of this sometimes think about john's language in such lofty majestic terms with images and pictures because they're trying to help us get free from living life captured by the world that's why when paul wrote to titus he he talked about this pull this blessed hope of the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so there's this pull that develops in us as we walk with the Lord to bring us back to our nationality. We belong to Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. Second, 
engage in the battle. You see this again in verse 11. I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires or fleshly desires that wage war, that campaign against the soul. You see, there's a battle raging. I did not have to tell you that. But Peter tells us that. There's this battle raging, and the battlefield is your mind and your soul. Uh, let me mention a book, and you, you probably get it online for nothing, uh, called um, Holy War by John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress back in the 17th century. And it's an allegory where he helps us to understand exactly what, what I'm trying to set forth before you and what Peter is, is speaking of. Notice the sinful desires, these fleshly desires, the, the passions of the flesh, as the ESV puts it. They exist within us. So you have a new nature in Christ, but you still live in the same body. I mean, you didn't get a new body. He didn't somehow or another, when he saved you, pull your brain out and, and uh, throw it in the incinerator and stick a new brain in you. That, that didn't happen. And so the Scripture makes this distinction. L listen how Paul put it in Romans 6, 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, pulling the plug on it, so to speak, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Does that mean we become passive when we are Christians? No. Verse, verses 12 and 13, Romans 6. Therefore, therefore, because of what Christ did, therefore, because he dealt with the source of our sin, and now we're still living in these bodies, and so we've got to deal with stuff. Therefore, he said, do not offer any parts of it, your eyes, your ears, your tongue, your hands, your feet, your mind. Do not offer any parts of it as weapons for unrighteousness. You see, the crosswork of Jesus conquered the sinful flesh. In, in other words, he shut down the power plant. He affected the power plant. He put a new desire and a new affection in us. But we still live in this mortal body. A body subject to death. A body prone to weakness. A body that is affected by everything around us so that we have to understand Christ now dwells in us. And we've got this new advantage that we never had before as, uh, as unbelievers. I mean, you didn't get a new brain when you came to faith in Christ, but you did get a new nature that affects your brain that regularly, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.23, needs to be renewed. You're renewed in the spirit of the mind, which means you can't be passive about sinful desires that still lurk in your thoughts. You can't be passive. You have to be on attack. You've got to be on the offensive, not just the defensive. You can't be passive about sinful habits that still cling to you. You can't be passive about godless distractions that once had your affections, that once had you completely trapped, but now you see them for what they are as totally antithetical to life in Christ. This is your progressive sanctification. This is that ongoing work by which your mind is being renewed and that Christ-centered word is, is going deep into your life and the Holy Spirit is working that word in you and you're exercising your spiritual disciplines and little by little, step by step, in this holy war, you're seeing Christ formed in you. And so Peter tells us, take action. Notice that he says, abstain. Peter, who do you think I am? He said, you're in Christ. That's who I think you are. You're a new creature. That's who I think you are. So hold yourselves away from the desires that remain. So how do you do that? Let, let me give you three practices, daily practices for your life. First, you recognize sin for what it is. It is enmity against God that put Jesus on the cross. It is the manifestation of the spirit of the world through transgressing God's law. You don't put a veneer over your sin and make it respectable. 
And brothers and sisters, you don't misuse your Christian liberty to excuse your sinful practice under the guise of freedom in Christ. You say, well, how do I check that out? How do I know that I act like Jesus in its sin? Let that be your standard. Second, you discipline yourself daily to die to sin. You remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 31? I die daily. Paul, how do you live your life? I die daily. I've been crucified with Christ. He lived in that. And so you apply the work of the cross every day. You recognize and confess that Jesus did the cross work to set you free. We were singing about that. We didn't do that. Jesus did that. And, and from that point, everything that doesn't look like him, he's freeing us from. And this is where the word and prayer, meditation on the word and corporate worship and the Lord's table continually bring us back to the cross. And that's what we'll be doing in a few minutes. We'll be going to the Lord's table to bring us back to the cross and say, oh, that's where I died. That's when it happened 2,000 years ago. Now I'm learning to live in that because I'm in union with Christ. He took me to the cross. Third, you focus on whatever the opposite of that sin might be in the graces in which Christ has given you to live. Um, Stephen was actually helping us with that Wednesday night when he was teaching us that instead of stealing, what do you do? You give. That's the opposite. And so if you're struggling with selfishness, then aim for generosity. If your eyes stray to impure things, then look for that which is good and excellent that the Lord has given to you. If you slip into patterns of anger, then focus on the forgiveness of Christ and the gratitude that you have for his love in meeting you in your sin and look for ways to serve others without expecting anything in return. And so this exhortation, remember your nationality, engage in the battle. Third, live in the mission uh, to further help us abstain from sin while living the, uh, the Christ life. Peter exhorts us to mission. Notice verse 12. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. That's the unbelieving world. So that uh, when they slander you as evildoers, remember what I told you that, that was happening, what Tacitus said, these folks are hatred, uh, they, they hate humanity, they hate the human race, they're evildoers. When they slander you as evildoers, they will observe, they will carefully see your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. I think he's talking about judgment day. So negatively, he says, abstain, take action against the sinful passions and practice in your, uh, practices in your life. But positively, he says, pursue the good things that bring glory to Christ. Not, not for merit. You're not, you're not gaining anything. You don't get closer to God because of that. You don't have better standing with God because you do a lot of good things. No, you do that out of the overflow of someone who is in Christ, who is counted righteous before God. And so what, what kind of good things are we to be pursuing? Well, love those who are unlovable. Serve the poor and the widows and the downtrodden. Generously give of your time to help others in need. Participate in cheerfully giving of your means to kingdom work through the local church. Speak kindly to those who are unkind. Encourage those the Lord brings your way. Pray for someone in need. Visit the sick and the lonely and the grieving Call a church member that you don't know well and check on them. See how they're doing. Do orphan care. Take a meal to a neighbor. Cut the neighbor's lawn. Uh, pick up sticks in your neighbor's yard. Pray for someone in your neighborhood. Meet them and pray for them. Compliment a stranger in the workplace. Treat your fellow employees with kindness. Be diligent in your work. Be exemplary in your speech. I think he got the idea. Peter heightens all of this as part of the Christian life. It just simply is the overflow of the Christ life. You don't do it for show. You don't do it to gain merit. 
You do it because it is a natural outworking of someone who's learning to live in gratitude because of the work of Christ. And brothers and sisters, that's not normal. But Jesus isn't normal. The Jesus life isn't normal. So it's okay to not be normal. You don't have to be worried that somebody thinks you are abnormal. Please be abnormal as a follower of Christ. I don't mean being crazily weird, all right? I don't mean doing stupid things. But if you're following Christ, you have heard the gospel and they repent and they believe. I, I listened, here and I listened recently to an interview that, um, that the Gospel Coalition, Colin Hansen, did with a, a University of North Carolina Chapel Hill historian, uh, Molly Worthen, and her work focused on critically uh, evaluating evangelicals. And so she approached it as an agnostic, not as a follower of Christ. And she, she was not angry about evangelical Christians and the evangelical gospel, but she didn't like it, and so she was after it. And so she was, um, uh, was uh, tasked with writing some kind of uh, paper, uh, some kind of article on J.D. Greer, pastor at Summit Church and on Summit Church in, in uh, Durham, North Carolina. And so she had earlier joined an Episcopal church because she decided she needed some kind of religion and she was inclined to this high church liturgy of, uh, of the Episcopal church. Well, let's just say that high church and summit church are never confused. I mean, they're not like each other at all. And so in a side comment, she said that the high church liturgy made her focus on the beauty and poetry in the historic Christian liturgy. But then she said the worship at the summit church caused her to focus on Jesus. I think that's what we want, isn't it? And so she attended services, she listened to sermons, she watched the people, and she interviewed staff before she ever talked to J.D. And she couldn't explain away, despite her antipathy toward the worship style and toward the gospel preaching, she, she couldn't explain away what she saw in these people. She discovered their mission work. She saw they worked with local schools. She saw they worked with the poor. She saw they were doing church planning. She saw they were doing mercy ministries. They were giving generously. People were going by the droves to the mission field. And she wanted to get to the bottom of it. And so she began to talk to J.D. And that led to gospel conversations with him and also with the late Tim Keller. She started reading theology. She started reading the Bible. And lo and behold, by the grace of God, she came to faith in Christ. And to top it off, this agnostic uh, Episcopal high church lady was baptized in a Baptist church. <laughs> that is exactly what Peter's talking about. They see your life. They see what you're doing. Can't explain it. Got to find out about it. And the rest is glorious eternal history. Thanks be to the Lord for that. And so... I would ask you, do you realize the impact of your conduct to those around you? Maybe in the workplace, maybe at school, your home life, your marriage, your parenting, kids, the way you relate to your parents, your traveling, your business, your being in the hospital, your engaging in sports, your shopping. Does your behavior look like Christ? That's where Peter's going with this. And so what does he say? Remember your nationality. Abstain from fleshly desires. Live like one who's been captive to the life of Christ. So how does that work out in real time? Well, notice, secondly, examples that bring us into reality. You know, Peter actually gives us three examples. I'm only going to look at two because the third example is in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. And some of these have been, would have been things that people would have talked about. They would have talked about the political life, the national life, uh, the public sphere. They would have talked about marriage, as Peter does in chapter 3. They would not have talked uh, about uh, these household slaves. They've just kind of been silent about that. And so let me give you a couple of caveats. One, I'm not going to address chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, because we'd be here considerably longer 
than what we're going to be. But I want you to understand, notice verse 1. See that word, in the same way, or maybe it's translated likewise in your translation. You see the same thing in verse 7. Then in verse 8, he's wrapping it together and he says, finally, all of this goes together. What, What we're addressing today is Peter unpacking for us how does the work of Jesus Christ affect you in the way you live your life in the sphere where you find yourself? The second caveat, I'm not going to go into detail to discuss political issues. Some of you say, thanks be to God. Uh, yes, because that misses the point of this passage. Nor am I going to work through the historic tragedy of slavery and the Christian response and often the lack of response to it. Because, again, that's not Peter's aim in this passage. Now, obviously, Peter was not pro-slavery. He was against it, but he realized that some of these brothers and sisters were living in it. So how did they live the Christ life right in the middle of it? Well, he's showing us that when Jesus' cross work bears evidence in your life, he'll show up, and it will show up in every sphere of your existence. First, living under governmental authority. Verse 13, submit to every human authority because of the Lord. He doesn't suggest that our political opinions become the basis for submitting or not. As Paul said, he called those God-ordained authorities. He says, because of the Lord, on account of the Lord, for the sake of the Lord, we're to exercise submission. Now, remember your real citizenship. You are strangers and exiles, but that doesn't excuse us from being models of civility and citizenship, even when it's difficult. Verse 13, he says, Do this whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is right. Nero was the emperor. And you may have very strong opinions about whoever is in the White House during any uh, election season, they don't even begin to compare with Nero. I mean, for brutality, there was no one like Nero. Maybe Domitian, a little bit, a few decades later. But they they were two peas in the same pod. Cruel, heartless, wretched, godless in every way, killing people right and left. I mean, you can't compare Nero's narcissism even with the narcissism we've seen in the White House in past years. You can't even compare it. You, you can't compare what, has, uh, what uh, Nero did in deceit to what we have observed from time to time. And yet it is in that setting that Christians were called to submit to governing authorities. As Peter David reminds us, It is because Christ, not Caesar, is Lord that one submits. So, in other words, as a manner of the outworking of Christ's lordship, we trust him, and that's the key, we trust him even in the way we respond to citizens. And in doing so, verse 19, Peter says, For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. I mean, Christians had this... This bad reputation in the Roman Empire. They were accused of incest because they were kept talking about each other as brothers and sisters. They were accused as cannibals because of the unbelieving world's misunderstanding about the Lord's Supper. Uh, they were accused of anarchy, ignorance of foolish people. Now, why, why does he say that? Because those who are outside of Christ can't understand Christ or the Christ life working through his people. Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.14, those things are spiritually understood. And so that, that aspect of the life is shut off. So if what I'm saying, you're going, this guy is crazy what he's saying. It's because your spiritual life is totally, totally in darkness. But if you recognize that, That's the mercy of God. Giving you a chance to say, Lord, please bring the light of the gospel into my life. Please 
bring me out of darkness. I want to see this Christ. I want to see what this Christ does. And so how, how are we to be living out this kind of, of, of Christ's life? Well, he says, submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Now, this is where Christian liberty has got to be understood properly. Peter warns us against freedom by gratifying our own self-indulgences. And so, if you're so concerned about your freedom in Christ, you're even more concerned about that than you are about living out the Christ life, then you're misunderstanding what it means to be free in Christ. Freedom, as Peter David says, is not released from bondage to a state of autonomy, but released from bondage to become slaves of God. I mean, that's what Paul said, Romans 6, 22. But now, since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God... You have your fruit, which results in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. So how do we act in? How, how does it work out? Well, you, you'll notice what he says in, uh, in verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And so he's calling on us in living the Christ life, trying to learn what it is to live in the grace of God, to mirror the attitudes, character, speech, generosity, kindness of Jesus Christ to those around us. Second, the second example is enduring in settings outside, outside your control. Now, we uh, certainly have to be careful about taking our 21st century understanding of the evil and horrors that went on in both British and American institutions of chattel slavery. Uh, but there's still some similarities going on here. People that were treated as a subpar class, with most of them spending their lives in servitude. In, in the first century, people became slaves through military captives. That was the primary way. It's punishment for crimes, kidnapping, piracy, and, and slave trade. But there, there was some difference between what happened in the first century and, and what we read about, what we've seen in our nation's history. First century slaves were, were not enslaved because of a racial discrimination. They were just captured. They were conquered, and so they were subdued. And the second thing, the non-agrarian slaves were often encouraged to get an education to contribute more fully to their master's needs, unlike the grieving practices in our nation. What Peter's aim, though, was to call those in household slavery, household servitude, to live like Christ even under suffering and duress. Notice verse 18, household slaves. Submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the cruel. Now, we'd almost say, don't do it. Don't do it. That'd be your natural response. I mean, that'd be mine. But Peter says, no, there's something about the work of Christ. There's something about the power of the gospel that even to these cruel ones, submit with all reverence. He says, for it brings favor or it finds favor or it could be translated for this is a gracious thing if because of a consciousness of God or conscience before God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. Now, notice what he does here. He's rooting this countercultural, worldly, abnormal endurance in the life of Christ. And we'll see more of that in a moment. Now, you know, one... Uh, uh, of these people might have been able to easily submit to a good, generous, kind master. But only by the grace of God does one submit to one that is, uh, is cruel, heartless. The word he uses, cruel, here is the word that we get scoliosis from, crooked. It's a, the idea of severe. And so did that mean that Peter just went along with slavery? Of course not. He's letting the slaves know that their dignity is not 
found in, their, uh, in the struggles they were under. Their dignity is found in their consciousness of God who was reigning even over the hard details of their lives. God sees the injustice and he will avenge them. Verse 20, for what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten you endure it, but when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with, uh, with God or this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So as strangers in exiles living in a foreign land, waiting for the day when the Lord of life will bring us home and out of consciousness of him, out of a conscience bent on manifesting the character of Christ, these Christians living under this kind of hardship are learning to do that which is good. Juan Sanchez, that means this, that you develop a generous posture toward others that shows itself in how to act toward them. It's what Jeremiah told the exiled Jews in Babylon to do, seek the welfare of others. Uh, one of my favorite uh, biographies, autobiography, is by Darlene Diebler Rose called Evidence Not Seen. Karen just got through reading it uh, a couple of weeks ago. She was a missionary. She and her husband were missionaries in New Guinea during World War II in the 1940s. And uh, she and her husband were captured. They were in New Guinea, and they, they were captured by Axis powers, and they were put in a prisoner of war camp. Uh, she was separated from her husband, never felt his embrace again. He ended up dying. And every day she saw atrocities committed, and she saw prisoners living in abject horror and squalor and unbelievable conditions and the Lord kept giving her grace and she kept by the grace of God seeking to live the Christ life and it was difficult every day she had hardships every day she watched death and decay every day she lived with the reality of starvation and emaciation and brutality but by God's grace she endured and one day she was liberated. And years later, she found out that the commander of this prison of war camp, that she had confronted with the gospel and that she had lived out the Christ life, came to faith in Christ. This man who was utterly, utterly wretched, the Lord saved him by his mercy. That's the Christ life. But how can that happen? Here's the third thing we see. And this to me is the most important for you to get your head around and live in. And it is the provision of Jesus to live the Christ life. It would be heartless to put the weight of what we've seen upon our shoulders uh, as though it all depended upon us. But rather, it all depends on Jesus. He wants us to mirror his life, but it's not going to happen without his life at work in us. So, what, what do we see here? First is Christ's call on us. Verse 21, for you were called to this. He just got through talking about these, this slavery. For you were called to this. He just got through talking about submitting to Nero. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And so here's this call of Christ through the internal work of the Holy Spirit regenerating us, the external proclamation of the gospel bringing us to life. And out of this, while facing opposition and hardship and temptations and injustices and persecution and sorrow, Jesus has given us his life so that we might learn to trace our lives on his life. Notice that Peter says, he didn't commit any sin. No deceit was found in his, in his mouth. So what did he do? He gave us an example. The, the word here is such a beautiful word. You, you know what you do with your children when they're first learning to write? You have these neat little tablets. Some of you kids may have these. And you got dotted lines. So you make your S. I know I'm doing it backwards here, but I'm afraid to try it the other way. you got your little, little lines. It's got arrows to follow. And so we watch our children and they, they start trying to trace that, and they get way out of line and all that, and we smile at it. But practice, 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 and before long, there's something beautiful 
normally. I was an exception. There's something beautiful in that. We didn't have those, those nice lines. We just had stuff on the board. Uh, and, and so what he's saying here is that Jesus is wanting us, is wanting to trace his life in us. We see him. We see the life of Christ. We, we see how he is working in us, and he is tracing our lives over his life. Now, are we going to get there immediately? No. It's a process, this long, beautiful, glorious process. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, deny yourself. Okay? We're tracing ourselves. If you want to follow me, take up your cross. We're tracing ourselves in that daily death. And then we're following after him. Now, notice that Jesus took the countercultural way with his life. Verse 23, when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. How did Jesus live the way he lived? He kept entrusting himself to the Father. You remember he would go off and pray? What was he doing? He was listening to the Father. He was getting close to the Father. He was communing with the Father. Jesus would look to heaven. He was trusting in the Father. How do we live in the middle of the junk that we face? We learn to live our lives traced on Christ, trusting the Father every day, looking Him. Second, is Christ's work for you? We can rightly ask, how can we, with all of our sinful propensities and weaknesses, follow after the Christ life? This is what Peter says in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Then these next two words, circle it, so that, for, for the geeks in here, that's a Hina clause, which means it is a purpose clause, in order that, so that, having died to, singular, plural, sins, plural, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. Look, look what Jesus did. He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that in that union with Jesus Christ, we died to sins so that we might live for righteousness. For, and here's that, that beautiful expression, for by his wounds you've been healed. That's talking about a whole lot more than getting over your flu. It's talking about the whole of your life. So Jesus bears our sins on the cross. He takes away our judgment. He satisfies divine justice. He removes the enmity between us and God. He reconciles us to God. Is that true of you? Can you say, yes, by the grace of God, He has done that for me? Oh, if not, today's a great day to look to Christ. You trust Him. You see what He did. And so what did Jesus do? When he brought us into a relationship with himself, he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Wherever you go, I am there. He calls us friends. What does he do for his friends? He prays for his friends. What else does he do? He comes near to his friends. Oh, he came near in the incarnation, brothers and sisters. But he came nearer in the cross. Because he took our sins. He came near. So that what? Having died to sins, where our minds are being renewed. And as we're renewed in the spirit of the minds, we're enabled to put on the new self, which is the one that is created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. This is where in Ephesians 4, Paul says, okay, you've got a problem with lying? Then what you've got to do, put that away and start speaking truth. You've got a trouble with stealing? Okay, turn from that and start working hard and being generous. You've got trouble with your speech? He says, then you've got to speak graciously. Let all bitterness, anger, wrath, shouting, and slander be removed from you along with all malice. Put it away, but don't stay in neutral. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God who forgave you in Christ. 
You see, Jesus' death leads us to die to sin. That's the negative. But Jesus' death and resurrection leads us to live in righteousness. That's the positive of verse 12. We live in Christ because his, Christ, his cross work affects the way that we look and respond to sin on one hand and how we follow and respond in obedience and godly living on the other. The Christ-evidenced life keeps looking more and more like the Christ life. And then one final thing, the third thing, and that is this, Christ shepherding over us. Notice in verse 25, he, he says, for you were like sheep going astray. That's Isaiah 53 language. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Cross work leads to lordship. Cross work leads to Christ shepherding you. Crosswork leads to Christ being your life so that you can say with Paul, if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's. Don't belong to myself anymore. I don't belong to the world anymore. The cross was the dividing line. Has the cross been the dividing line in your life so that Christ is your life? I mean, does your life give evidence of that cross work of Jesus? You see, you don't just have a home in heaven when that happens. You have heaven starting to work into your life to get you ready for that eternal home because of the effects of the dying and rising of Jesus and tracing your life in the life of Christ. Let's pray together. If you have not put your faith and trust in Christ, I'm going to tell you, Jesus changes those that he saves. You say, then how do I respond? You turn from your sin and you turn to Christ. You repent and you believe that Jesus is enough. Not Jesus plus all your good works. Jesus in his death and resurrection and you trust him. Turn to him. Follow him. Believe him. Father, as those who know you, we want to live in the Christ life. Please bring that home to us more and more. Please help us as brothers and sisters together to not live for the flesh, but to give ourselves day after day to living in you. We pray that you would trace the life of Christ in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.